Good evening, everybody. Everybody well? It's only the middle of January. You just feel like life is good. Still have a bit of holiday residue. Still have a bit of fat from the you know, Christmas time. It's all good. Amen? Amen. Didn't we have a brilliant week this past week about in, the, in our time of prayer and fasting as a church? We start every year. And I want to give a good shout out to so many of our technical teams and our musicians. They put in many hours this week in different meetings, leading. We had through-the-night meetings. Some of them were here while you were asleep, and uh, we're just so thrilled and so blessed to have such great people that serve and love the Lord. They ultimately do it because they love the Lord, and it's such an awesome privilege. One of the challenges we have around Hatfield and, and this community of ours is there's so much that happens here that you can never tell everybody what's going on. There's, and it constantly is a challenge for us to try and figure out how do we make sure everybody knows everything that goes on at Hatfield. So even the announcements become such a challenge for us. Uh, we've got so many things that just doesn't make it onto a video announcement or an announcement sheet like this evening because God has blessed us with so much at Hatfield. So what we're going to do is uh, next week we're launching what is called Life at Hatfield, which is a booklet about all the things that God does at Hatfield. Now Hatfield is about discipleship. Like Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. We've just taken that and said, well, that's our mission. That's what we do. We make disciples. And discipleship at Hatfield happens in two major ways, community and equipping. And those two things are sort of the main divisions of everything that we do fits into those two categories. Now, it's not that community happens without equipping or equipping happens without community. Because if you go and do an LTS, we would strictly classify that as equipping, but you will experience community. And even when you go for community like a life group or something, you will experience commit, uh, um, equipping because those sort of interwoven, but those are the things that we do. So in this booklet, Life at Hatfield, that we'll launch next week and that you'll also be able to receive, is it gives an outline of all the stuff we do on both the community side and the equipping side. So please make sure you get one of those and, uh, because we don't present church programs because we're trying to be busy and trying to just get stuff to do, you know, because we work at church, we've got to do something. Many people ask us when you work at church, so what do you do in the week? What do you do, Herman, when you work at the church? Hey, we just sit around and pray and, I don't know, hey, play piano or something. I don't know. Hey, what do you do when you work at church? It's like people think when you work at church, there's nothing to do. They sort of don't think that these chairs didn't pack themselves. Somebody had to come and put them here. But when we do things at Hatfield, it's all about trying to help and create opportunities for people to be discipled. And uh, so don't miss out on opportunities. Make this a year. Perhaps it's an opportunity for you to do something new. If you've never done a life training school, do one. Or never done life changes, do one. Try something new this year and get into community and into equipping. But that's not my message for this evening. So now I'm switching gears over into message. Coming out of this wonderful week of prayer and fasting that we had, we had such rich times in both the churches, the South Church and here, and I sort of go between the two and spend some nights and mornings here and some nights there, and, and uh, it's been so beautiful to see the Lord speaking to us as a community together in different places, but with the same voice. Sometimes it's a bit scary when you say, hmm, okay, these exact words were said in the East last night as now it's being said in the South, and I'm in uniquely positioned to experience that and just to be so encouraged and strengthened by that. And there's many things that stood out over this week, that, that words that the Lord reminded us often to say, these you must carry with you. But there was one particular sense that I felt that the Lord is saying to us as a community that I want to bring into this space this evening. 
and share with you, and, and I'm going to do what, what I would call teach prophetically. So speak prophetically, but in a teaching format. And the idea of it is so that it really lands in our hearts. And now some of you heard the message this morning, look alive. Ethan, my own son's here. This will be the third time he hears this message because he was in both morning services. So look alive. Um, just, you know, I know when message, I listen to it second or third time. Sometimes I hear completely different things I didn't hear the first time. I'll even try and say some things I didn't say this morning just for your sake. So try and catch you out. But the title of my message this evening is Reopen the Ancient Wells. Reopen the Ancient Wells. And this comes from, a, uh, over the last months, we've continuously had prophetic words come to us as a church, both from people inside of our church and people outside of our community, that just kept on saying to us that there are ancient wells that God is reopening at Hatfield. And things that He placed here, before we were even here, that He's stirring up again, that for some other reason, they may have been blocked, but God is reopening that and on Monday night here, we had one of the friends of Hatfield, an Egyptian man by the name of Hani Emmanuel, came and shared with us, and, and, and he shared this word again with us. And then on Tuesday night, when I got to the South Church, we sang songs about reopening the wells. And I thought, okay, now I must pay attention. So one of the key scriptures that kept on being mentioned is Genesis 26. So I thought, let me go to Genesis 26 and go read it for myself, and not just believe somebody else, but just go and read it for myself. And as I read it, it was like, bam. I felt, okay, Lord, there's a lot here, and we need to pay attention. So it's from that place that, I've, that I actually changed the message, had a different message planned for today and for this evening, and felt, and I put it before the rest of the leaders, we, we shared it with each other, and we felt this is the word of the Lord for us at this time. So what I'm going to do is take us to Genesis 26 and just share with you a little bit of the story of Isaac. Now, I don't even remember who Isaac is. Isaac, the son of Abraham, sometimes we call him the son of promise. Remember, there was Abraham, this guy. Before he was called Abraham, he was called Abram. And he lived with his family as a normal person. And one day God spoke to him. And God said, Abraham, if you leave your country, if you leave the place where your, where your home is, if you leave your people, leave your security, leave your comfort, leave your certainty, and go to the land, I will show you. God didn't tell him where he was going. He just said, just, you know, I'll show you. Just come. Then I will bless you. And I will make your descendants as many as the, the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And through you, I will bless every nation. So this sounded like a bargain to Abraham. He's like, wow. So he did it. He obeyed God, left his home, left his country, left his people, left his security, everything that was familiar and certain to him, and he followed God. And uh, you know the story. He was already old in age, him and his wife, and there were no children. But late in their life, as they kept on believing God and standing in faith, God came through, and a son was born to them. And this son was, the, was Isaac. Isaac was the fulfillment, the first step into this amazing promise God had for him. Now, Abraham and Sarah passed away. They went, you know, to be with the Lord. And now we pick up the story of Isaac, the son of promise, this son that was becoming the, the first step into this amazing promise of God's blessing. And we read in Genesis 26 the story of Isaac, a bit of his story. And it begins with these wonderful, encouraging words. Now there was a famine in the land. How many of you like that start to a story? There was a time of lack. There wasn't enough. People were scrounging. People were trying to find food, but there wasn't enough. People were concerned. Economies were collapsing. People were moving about, looking for a place. 
And it adds this little sentence. It says, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Now, that little sentence that it adds in there says, that, remember, this is not the famine that was in Abraham's time. This is the famine of Isaac's time. Yeah, that sort of makes it worse, isn't it? This isn't the first famine Isaac's been through. He already went with his parents. There was a time of famine in his father's time. Now there's another famine. And Isaac is in the same position as his father was at that time. Because remember, his father left home and became a nomad. A person moving around with no place to call their own, no place that they could say, this is my land. I'm going to plant crops here, and I'm going to look after myself and my family. He was always moving about, because he had no place, no people, no, in that sense, identity that he could say, this is what defines me as a person, other than he was a nomad following God's voice. Now we read Isaac's story. This is roughly about 80 years later. So in 80 years, we can say, not much has changed for this family. They're still not in a good space. They're still not in a good place. But despite all these wonderful promises that God gave them, and despite their obedience and Abraham's obedience and actually stepping out and doing what God said, it hasn't really improved life for them. They're actually in quite a desperate place. So like many people of the day, Isaac went to find a city to go live in. We see it today. When there's trouble in the land and when there's famine and when there's scarcity, what do people do? There's urbanization that takes place. People come to cities to find work, to find perhaps there's more opportunities. Right now in our country, it's, it's, a, it's a massive uh, movement of people. Same in Isaac's time. They moved to the, the city. The city they moved to was a Palestine, uh, Palestine, ugh, Philistine, Palestine, Philistine, Philistine city. And uh, the king's name was Abimelech. Now, interesting that his father Abraham also had a king Abimelech that he dealt with that was also a Philistine king. Now, we don't know if it was the same guy, 80 years apart roughly, but people lived long in that time. But we think it's probably a different king because that was a common name for the kings of the day. But nevertheless, Isaac finds himself in this city. Now, the city had an interesting name. The name, as we translate it, is Gerar. But the meaning of that word is dwelling place, home. So yeah, Isaac, man without a home, comes and lives in a city that is called home. Sort of like the irony of it, isn't it? The Bible has these beautiful little ironic moments. This, it's almost like, you know, to the point. This is the point of Isaac's life. He doesn't have a dwelling place, and he goes and lives in a city that is called dwelling place. But remember, he's not a citizen of that city. He's a foreigner, living there by their grace and by their just allowing them. Didn't have any rights. It wasn't a, a time of great human rights in any case. But as a foreigner, you had very little rights in a foreign city that you were living in. And they were just trying to do the best they can to survive. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. You see, what was happening in that time is though there was famine in that area, Egypt was going through a time, a boom time. They were going through a time of blessing. There was a lot. Of, the economy was growing. There was lots of jobs. They were building projects. Some of it you had to be a slave to be part of the building project. Not so great, but, you know, stuff was happening. And uh, so many people were sort of moving down to Egypt and saying, wow, that's the place to be. And Egypt also became a bit, because of this melting pot of people, they knew how to deal with refugees and people from different places. So it was a bit more friendly. So there was this natural movement almost of people in Isaac's state to go to Egypt. But God says to Isaac, don't go with everybody else to Egypt. Stay in this land that I will show you. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and I will bless you. 
Stay in the place of famine. Stay in the place that is hostile towards you. Stay in the difficult place and I will bless you. Have you ever heard the Lord say something like that to you? Stay where you're not wanted and I will look after you. Stay where it's not nice and I will, I will, I will take care of you. This is what he said to him. So Isaac obeyed the Lord. Now the Lord wanted him to stay in that land for a particular reason. You see, because this land wasn't any old land. It wasn't a randomly chosen land where God said, stay here. This was the land that God actually promised to his father. Remember when Abraham left his home, the Lord said, I will give you a place and I will make you a great nation. This is the land. Right there where Isaac was. That land, later we get to know that land as Canaan, the promised land. That's right where Isaac was. So he was right where the Lord wanted him to be. And they were right in the middle of the promise of God, even though it didn't look like it. Even though it was famine and it was hostile and it, it wasn't a great place. He was right there where God said, I will bless you. Stay here. Now if, if Isaac wanted to have the blessing of God, what would he have to do? He'd have to obey and stay. If he left and went to Egypt, he would have found momentary relief for him and his family, but he would have lost the promise of God. But he stayed in that place. God rem reminds him of the promise he gave to his father. And he says to him, For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me. God says to Isaac, I started a journey with your father and it's now your turn to continue it. And that journey will lead to your blessing. But stay. Stay here. Obedience is such an important thing for us as believers. It is the expression of faith. You see, for us to have what God has promised, we have to live by faith. Remember in Hebrews 11, the, the whole the hall of fame, or the hall of faith, that speaks about these great people of faith. It mentions Abraham, and it says the following about Abraham in Hebrews 11, verse 8 to 10. It says the following. By faith, Abraham. And remember, this is why God said Abraham was a righteous man, because he believed God. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were, there, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. You see, this is the challenge of faith. Faith, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4 for instance, is believing in what you don't see and living like it's real. That's what faith is. You see, the Scripture tells us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three generations, that all had this promise that God said, I will give you this land, it will belong to you, all lived in tents. What does that mean? Why does it say they lived in tents? Living in tents meant they didn't own the land. They lived in the land of promise, but they didn't have it. It didn't belong to them. They were tent dwellers. They were nomads. They were pushed around. Every so often they had to move off somebody's land. When somebody said, hey, you bothering us, then they had to move. Every time somebody argued with them or fought with them and said, look, you, you're taking our resources, they moved. They didn't have a place where they could say, this is our boundary, this belongs to us, nobody can chase us. 
So as, as vagabonds, as nomads, they moved around physically, in the physical. But in the spiritual, by faith, they saw something different. They lived as if they owned that land. Not with arrogance and how they treated other people, but in their spirits there was the peace and the surety that it, others may see us as nomads, but we know that God has planned a city for us. And this is the challenge of faith. Are we living by our experience or are we living by the promises of God? Obedience is when I say, Lord, I may not see your promise, I may not feel your promise, I may not have your promise, but I'm going to act according to your word as if your promise is real. That's obedience. You start stepping out. It changed their behavior, changed the way they looked at themselves. They didn't look at themselves as a landless people. They looked at themselves as the citizens of the city of God. All of them died without experiencing this. And in fact, do you know how long it took for them to actually see this promise come to pass? Roughly 500 years later. And then it was only the beginning of that promise. Do you know that we're still all waiting for this promise to come to pass? Jesus said, I have gone to my Father to prepare a place for you. That's the city that we're really talking about. The kingdom of God, the place of God. But you and I today can live as if we're citizens of this world. Just transitory people. Or we can live as citizens of the kingdom. What is our reality? And that's the, the journey of faith that this family walked. But it was not easy. They were not welcome in that place. Every so often they were reminded of it. The scripture tells us in verse 7 on, it tells us this story. When Isaac had been there a long time, so him and his family moved and they were surviving in that city and the famine was going on and life was tough. When he had been there for a while, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Remember Isaac, it was a miracle how he got to marry Rebekah. It was one of the manifestations that he could hold on to to say, God's promise is real. He was blessed with this amazing wife. But when they came into the land of the Philistines, remember this is the rough times, human rights and all of that stuff, you know, not so great. And it became a bit of a thing that if you had a beautiful wife, they'll kill you for your wife. So he did what his father did. He lied. Remember, Abraham did the same thing with Sarah and told everybody, she's my sister. Now, that protected his life, put her in a little bit of risk. Not a great thing to do, but that was the environment they were in. Threatened around every corner. No, no safety, no security, no sense of you know, protection. But God, even in this situation, looked after him. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people that anyone who harms this man or his wife will surely be put to death. So he starts giving them some protection. But do you pick up that the king had to say, you're not allowed to touch this man's wife. There was no common law protecting her. The king had to make a special decree. It's a tough place. Not God's kind of place, you know. And God says, stay here. I wonder what Rebecca had to say about that. 
stay here. I will bless you. So they stayed. But the story continues. There's more. Then it continues on and it says the following in verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land. And the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. Wow. Remember, this is time of famine. Famine meant probably there was not a lot of rain. El Nino. Not a lot of rain around. It's hot. Things weren't growing. So food was scarce. People's crops were failing. So Isaac, for some other reason, decides, I'm going to plant a crop. So what he most likely did was, you know, you lived in the city, but there were parcels of land around the city. So he got permission to use a portion of land that nobody was using because they weren't planting. You know, there were no crops. And he went and planted. Like I said this morning, he planted cabbage. So he planted, we don't know that, but can we make it cabbage? Is that okay? So he planted cabbage. Everybody's expectation was, it's going to die. But with that first step of faith that he took, God blessed him. A hundredfold harvest returned to him. That means for every one cabbage seed that he planted, he got a hundred heads of cabbage back. Wow. There was this day when he had to rent carts and get some oxen and load the, the harvest onto the carts and come into the town and bring this, all this cabbage into the city and the people were starting to smell something and they're going, what is going on here? And this cabbage came into the city. And everybody went, where does this cabbage come from? We thought nothing grows. We thought this is a famine. But what is all of this cabbage doing here all of a sudden? Because God was blessing Isaac. Now, you know what happens in a time of food scarcity. It's the law of supply and demand. When there's a little of something, the price goes up. So perhaps before the famine, you'd buy a cabbage for 50 cents. But now it's famine, so now a cabbage is scarce and it costs five rand a cabbage. And Isaac's selling them by the hundreds. And he's getting wealthy very quickly. So what happens when you make money? You've got more money to invest. So next time he doesn't just plant 100 cabbage seeds, he plants 10,000 cabbage seeds. And he's just getting rich. And the scripture says, the man became rich. Wow, aren't you glad that's in the Bible? The man became rich. How many of you can say, I can live with that? The man became rich. Not only did he become rich, it carries on and it says, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He was just suddenly, he became like, you know, Jeff Bezos kind of rich. Just, it's ridiculous, man. Everybody else is struggling, but he is blessed. It says he had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. Uh-oh, here comes the problem. He's being blessed. It's wonderful. But that gets him noticed by everybody. Everybody starts going, now why is he so wealthy? What has he done? What, did, what corners have he cut? Who, who did he bribe? What, what is he doing? Why is he rich and we are not? Why are we struggling and he's blessed? That's not right. And they started envying him. Envy is such a human response. But it's a very problematic response. You see, envy was introduced in the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve was created by God to live in this wonderful garden. And God said, this is very good. Just live, enjoy life, name the animals. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
Have as many children as you want because I have prepared for you. I have made a beautiful place for you to live in. There's more than enough food here. Just go and multiply. Now, don't let your mind dwell on that too long. But just multiply, man. There was no limitation in God. God wasn't Chinese. He didn't say only one per, only one per family. He said as many as you want. Just have kids. Because God made this earth for his people. But when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they basically said is, God, we're going to go at this our own. We don't need you. We're going to figure this out. We know how to live life without you. And they turned away from God. And when they stepped away from God, they stepped into the curse. In Genesis 3 verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Life became difficult. You see, God's original intent and plan for this earth was abundance. But through sin and death, scarcity came in. And through scarcity, competition. Now we're competing with each other for limited resources. And that became the the understanding and the expectation of the people of this world. We saw it right in Adam's family manifest. Remember Cain and Abel was born. And the scripture tells us that Abel had favor because he was a livestock farmer. He had sheep and goats and things. And he was blessed and his livestock was like, you know, wow. But Cain, who was a vegetable farmer, and this is not meaning God is more for veget less for vegetarians than, you know, that, that, don't apply this to that at all got nothing to do with it. But he wasn't blessed. So right there, a struggle began in Cain's heart where he looked at his brother and he said, why are you blessed? Why am I not blessed? And he became envious of his brother. And his envy grew. Remember in, in Genesis, the Lord came to him and said, Cain, sin is knocking at the door of your heart. If you do well, you will master it. If not, it will master you. And he didn't. He didn't get hold of his envy. He let it grow in his heart till the point where he killed his brother. Why did he kill his brother? Because he simply meant, he said this, if my brother is not there to be blessed, then I can get all his blessings. Then I'm not competing with him any longer. There's only so much to go around. And if he's taking more than half of it, then I'm getting less. And therefore, I've got to kill him. And that spirit became the spirit of this world. The spirit of competition. The spirit of lack. There's not enough to go around. And the people of this world live in that spirit. If you have, that must mean I can't have. And we see this spirit right there. In this time, the Philistines envied Isaac. To the point that they started taking some measures to make sure that they limit his blessing. So what they did is, so all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham... The Philistines stopped up filling them with earth. Now, why was, Ab was Isaac blessed? Physically, we know it's because of the promise of God. But physically, what was going on was he discovered water under the ground. Because he remembered, perhaps it was passed on to him by his father that told him, there's water under the ground here. So when it's not raining, just go and look for the wells. And if you dig open the wells and if you allow the water, then you can water your plants. You can water your cabbages and you'll have beautiful cabbage because the water's in the ground. So Abraham, when he lived there, he was blessed because he discovered these wells. Now, can I ask you this question? This may be a stupid question. 
But where did this water come from that was under the ground? Who put it there? When was it put there? I wonder if it's possible that this water God put there when He created the earth. And He put the water there. He said, I know there's going to be people living in this land. Perhaps He even had Abraham in mind and He said, I know my servant Abraham is going to walk this land. And I want to provide for him long before he even comes. I want to put under the ground a provision for him. And Abraham, because he was God's child and could hear God's voice, and, and somehow God led him and he found this water. He dug up the wells. And while everybody was else was struggling, he had water. He sold bottled water to everybody else. Had a little, what are those, oasis shop on the corner. Sold water. He's blessed, man. Everybody else was going, there's no water. He's going, <laughs> there's lots of water. You just don't know where to look for it. But the funny thing happened. So he's got water. Now the Philistines looked at Abraham and said, like they did with Isaac, why is he blessed? Why has he got water? We don't have water. So they discovered the wells. Now, one would think that they would go to Abraham and say, Abraham, we see you've got lots of water. Can we make some agreement with you? Can we enter into business with you or some way buy shares in your oasis shop so that we can also have water? Can we? They didn't do that. Because you see, a spirit of lack and a spirit of envy wants nobody to have. So they blocked the well. They said, if, 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 if some of us are going to have no water, then rather none of us have any water. So they stopped the wells. So everybody suffered. But at least Abraham wasn't blessed. The same thing happened with Isaac. Isaac remembered, aha, my dad had some water that he discovered. He went and found those wells, opened them up, and just started using that water. And the Philistines realized this. So the, what did they do? Did they learn their lesson? Did they say, Isaac, we don't want to suffer. We want to share in your blessing. No, no. They said, get out of here. And they closed the wells. We carry on reading. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. You are too blessed. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar. So he moved just outside of the city in the valley below the city. Not too far from the city. When he, where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. He just stepped back into God's provision. Now, Isaac was a son of provision. He understood something of God's provision. I'll tell you why. I want you to remember. Because when he found these new wells and said, Hey, now we've still got water. They kicked us out of the city, but God is still providing for us. Isaac's servants dug the, the, in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek. Essek means dispute. Because they disputed with him, then they dug another well. But they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. Sitna means opposition. So they kept on chasing him away, saying, there's no space for you. This is ours. There's not enough to go around. We cannot share this water with you. Even if you dug it, there's not enough. We want it all for ourselves. Can you see this spirit, this scarcity, this competition? But Isaac had a different spirit. Because Isaac was looking not to live in tents, but to looking for the city of God. He knew something they didn't know. He knew that God provides. 
And therefore, he viewed the world different. Remember, when Isaac was a little boy, early teens possibly, one day his dad said to him, Isaac, come with me, we're going to sacrifice. So he walked along with his dad. And as they were walking, he started noticing that something was missing. He saw the knife. He saw the fire. He saw the wood. He saw the things that they were going to construct this altar with. He saw all of that stuff. But what he didn't see was a sacrifice. So he sort of tugged on his dad's you know, coat and he said, Dad, can I ask you a question? Where's the sacrifice? Now, ever a son asked the father a tough question, it was this. What was Abraham's response? Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 8 said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, you and I know the backstory. What, who was the sacrifice? Isaac. Because God spoke to, uh, to Abraham and said, you must act, sacrifice your son. And Abraham, being the son of obedience that he was, said, Lord, I will do this. I don't know how he got past Sarah. He must have lied to her. He must have told her something because I cannot see myself telling my wife, I'm going to go and sacrifice one of our sons. And she goes, shop, see you later. Bring bread on your way back home, please. Just buy some milk at the corner store. Uh, it's not going to happen. But in any case, Abraham, and off he goes. Now he's toiling with this in his heart, but he says, God will provide. His faith is in God. So they get on top of the, of the hill. And then this, this heart-wrenching moment happens where, can you imagine it? Isaac realizes when his dad grabs him and starts strapping him to the, to the altar they constructed that he's the sacrifice. And that horror, that, what that moment must have been like. But Abraham is acting in what he believes God is asking him. And when he raises that knife and he's going to kill, the voice of God speaks. And in Genesis 22, verse 13 to 14, we read this. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram behind him, caught by its, thorns, or by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Isaac knew the provision of God. His life was saved because of Now, God never wanted Abraham to kill Isaac. He wanted him to understand that he is a different God. You see, it was common practice for the people of the time to sacrifice their children to their gods, to buy peace, to buy appeasement with their gods. But God wanted Abraham to know that you will never please God by sacrificing your son. It's obedience that pleases God. And he wanted to make that a moment that, that Abraham and Isaac and everybody of us will remember. God provides. And obviously, what was this pointing us towards? About 1,800 years later, Jesus died on a cross. The Lamb of God. So that you and I will be provided for. See, this is the message of God. And Isaac knew this. So here's Isaac in this land. And they're saying to him, listen, you can't. You have water here. Move along. This is our water. Do you see Isaac doesn't fight with him? Now, I don't think he could have fought with him because he, was a, he didn't belong to them. But if he was desperate enough, he would have acted differently. But he just moves. Finds another well. They chase him away. He moves. Finds another well. Until it says they came. Uh, he moved on from there and dug another well. And no one quarreled over it. He named it Reboth. Reboth means room. 
saying, now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. For the first time he started feeling like, I have a place. Not just because he saw it in the spirit, but he could experience it in reality. Now the point of this whole story that I'm telling you. When God started this journey with Abraham, and he said to Abraham, Abraham, I will bless you. Why did God want to bless Abraham? What was the sentence that God said? I will bless you, and through you, every nation of the earth will be blessed. God's blessing is for all people. Even with Isaac, God wasn't blessing Isaac because he was trying to rub the noses of the, of the Philistines in it and saying, yeah, you see, if you only listen to me, you'd also be blessed. What was God doing? He was building a vehicle for his blessing. You see, in Abraham, God called a man and he said, I will bless you. And through that man, he blessed a family. And through that family, he blessed a nation. And through that nation, a child was born. And through that child, every one of us is blessed. That is the heart of God, is the heart for every nation. Not for some. You see, the spirit of this world is there's some that will be blessed. There's some that will have. There's space for some, but not for everybody. This is a world with limited resources. This is a world with, for competition, and, and it's some will get, uh, get what you know, they want, but not everybody. It's not, it's not possible. That's the spirit of this world. Now, I know we live in a world where there's real issues. The real issues of our abusing our planet, the real issues of social justice, the real issues of ground in our nation. And these are all real things that we have to find answers for and, and deal with. But it's different when we look at one another and I say, Gideon, you may be different than me, you may be other than me, you may be not my people, but I believe God has made a place for you. And I want you to help you find your place also if I can. It's different than when I look at Gideon and say, you are my competition, you're the problem. Because you're not like me and you're not my people and it's not my responsibility to look after you. I'm only going to look after me and mine. So, sorry if you're suffering, but that means I can have more. That's the spirit of this world. God's saying, that's not my, my purposes. The prophets spoke about it. In Isaiah 56 verse 7, God said this, These I will bring to my holy mountain. And give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Right there in the Old Testament. When God made his promises to the Jewish people. Some of those promises have been fulfilled. Some will be fulfilled. When God was blessing the Jewish people, he wasn't just looking at the Jewish people, the Hebrew, the Israelite. He was looking at every nation and saying, I want to bless every person. God said, there's more than enough. There's place for everyone. Remember when Jesus got so angry? When he, when he was here on earth, and one day he walked into the temple, and he saw the spirit of competition, the spirit of greed, the spirit of there's not enough to go around in the temple, in this place that God said would be a house of prayer for all nations. He said that some were being disadvantaged and cheated and, and they were selling the, 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 the sacrificial animals far more expensive than they were supposed to and they were you know, putting their thumbs on the scale and all sorts of crookery was going on because there was a belief system in some of the priests that said there's not enough for everybody. We must do whatever we can so that we can have what we want even if we have to cheat the people. So Jesus walked in and said, this spirit I will not allow in my house, which is a house of prayer for everyone. There's place for everyone. So what did Jesus do? 
In one of the versions, it said he knitted a, I can't remember the word. I couldn't remember it this morning. A whip, that's the one. Thank you very much. In Afrikaans, a sambok. He sat and he knitted it. And then he walked into the temple and he started, forgive me, this is not my opinion, this is what the Bible says, our lovely, wonderful Jesus beat people with a whip. He smacked some people, man. He was a wild man. Imagine that, him running around, kicking some tables open, beating some people. And these were not just people, these were religious leaders. I'm suddenly just feeling a little bit insecure here this 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 evening. Because Jesus said, this spirit will not find a place in my home. My house is a house for all people. Every person. And this prophetic word has been a word over Hatfield's history for so long. That this will be a house of prayer for all nations. Aren't we so privileged that right here, even this evening, or whenever you come to any of our times of gathering, small groups, big groups, you'll find different people of different nations. Different races, different languages, coming together, saying to each other, you belong. There's room for you here. This is a place for all people. I mean, years ago, we counted it in one service. We had 43 nations represented. I wish I could do that. But that's the Spirit of God. That's the heart of God. It's not a heart of scarcity. Not a God God of competition that plays us off against each other and says the ones of you that will produce the best and, and behave the best, you will be my children. He says, no, everyone. There's place for everyone. Can I read for you? This amazing portion of Scripture I'm coming to an end. Paul writes to the Ephesians about this very thing in Ephesians 2 verse 14 to 21. And he says this. Just listen to these words. Let it sink into your spirit. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. The two groups, meaning Jews and Gentiles. The competition, the separation that was between the two of them. The scarcity that they believed. With the Roman government and everything. God says, he has removed, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purposes was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. By which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. There was a time where I couldn't have access to God. I was one of those people, as most of you in this room that did not have Jewish heritage, we were those people that were far away. We were the aliens, the strangers. We were the Isaacs in the land that had no place to call our own. But God said, I will make a place for you. And Jesus came and died on a cross to remove the curse from us. So that if we repent, if we give our lives to Him, if we say, Lord, I don't want to live by the Spirit of this world. I want to live by faith in You, that we will be included. And Paul says, you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are members of God's household. You can sit around the table. There's space for you. This world may make you feel like you don't belong, but let me tell you, you belong. Do you believe that every single person that walks this planet has been purposed and planned by God? 
That long before any person is born and breathes on this planet, God put underground wells in place to provide for them. Because He's a good God. We sang it this evening. We proclaimed it by faith. He made a space for us. He made a place for us. Now you may be here today, tonight, and you may say to me, but that's all fine. But I just studied, finished studying at Varsity and I can't find a job. There's no place for me. Well, I've just finished school and I've applied, but there's no space for me. There's not enough space in our varsities for people. I can't find a place. Or perhaps you're saying, I don't have a home. I don't have a place. I don't have a family. I'm experiencing lack. I'm experiencing the competition of this world. I feel it. You may be from Zimbabwe and your family and your people are struggling and they're feeling it so real. I'm not saying those things aren't real. They were real to Isaac, to Abraham, to Jacob. But remember, by faith, they lived not in tents in their spirits, but they looked for the city of God. You see, this is the message of good hope that you and I have. And earlier we were challenged that this is not just for me, but it's to go and share. I wonder if you this week can go to one person that you find and just say to them, you belong. God made a space for you. You're not an accident. You're not a person outside. You're inside. Inside of the will of God. Come in. You see, at the cross, we're all equal. We all need to repent. We all need to ask forgiveness. None of us has a right to anything. But in Jesus, there's place for all of us. And that's the heritage of this house. The scripture that I read to you that I'll I'll finish with. Build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ in Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. If we want to be a place where God dwells by His Spirit, we must carry this Spirit with us. The Spirit that says there's place for everyone. The Spirit that says God has prepared. Not the Spirit of competition. Not the Spirit of lack. But the Spirit of generosity. That if I've got a place at the table, then I invite others to the table. That I say, come to the table with me. I don't exclude, I include. I draw near. I embrace. I give dignity. I I give love and respect. Because every person is made by God for a place at the table. Our nation. We can build this nation when we say there's place for everyone. There's place for everyone. Now, you and I have got to decide, do we believe that or don't we? Do we believe there's not enough space for everybody? That some shouldn't be here, there's no room for some. Or do we say there's room for everybody? Now, we have a heritage and a history in our nation that said there's not space for everybody. God has by His Spirit broken that, but it's up to us to hold that place and to say, not in our time will that Spirit rule ever again. There's place for everyone. That is the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I want you to close your eyes, if you don't mind. Not because I'm going to take anything from you. Hopefully, or anybody else. Because it may be that you're sitting here tonight, and you've had a growing feeling in your heart that there's no place for you. Perhaps you come from a community or a people or a family that's been outside, that has been feeling like we've got no hope. And I want to say to you tonight,
God has planned you. He has purposed for you. Long before you were born, he, per- he prepared for you. He's the God of provision. He never gets caught unawares. Don't believe the lie that you don't belong. Believe that there's a place for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that right now your truth will break through the lies. The message that we hear so subtly all day long. The pushing that we're feeling. The way that we get treated so often that tells us, move along. This is not your place. We pray, Father, that your kingdom will be among us. We know there's real answers we have to find to very difficult things. But we want to do that, Lord, because we believe there is place for everyone. We're not going to give up, Lord. We want to embrace. We want to welcome, Lord. We want to live in generosity. I want every person tonight to feel that, Lord, more real than the unkindness, the harshness of the world, to feel they belong. They have a place. But Lord, not only do we want to feel that about ourselves, we want to feel that about others also. Forgive us, Lord, if something has crept into our hearts of saying, that person or those people are the problem. Forgive us, Lord, if we feel threatened. Now, I know our nation doesn't have, but Lord, may we deal with these problems from a place of generosity, not from a place of competition and scarcity. Come, Holy Spirit. Give us a generous heart. And Lord, we pray as a church, in your spirit, we stand this evening and we say, this will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now and always, Lord, We pray that by your Spirit you will lead us and guide us and help us to stand for that word and to share that good news. That when people come, whether it's come here to the church grounds and come to any of our meetings or whether it's when they come to our homes and experience church in our homes or when they come into our office or in our car, wherever they come and to experience the kingdom of God, I pray, Lord, that they would experience that generosity of spirit that says there's room for you. And I pray that for us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for giving me time and opportunity to teach through this. And I pray that you will allow the Lord to speak to you. Because tomorrow you're going to face some things that will tell you, that was all a nice message for in church on Sunday, but (laughs) this is reality. It is there where our faith needs to rise. So thank you.